Open your Bibles with me to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 8. Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 8. If you've ever gotten a letter from me, you'll see that this is the verse that I sign by my name. And whenever I, I send out any correspondence, this is the verse that goes along with it. Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 8. The grass withereth and the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Amen? Grass withereth, flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. I'll tell you a story. When I was in fourth grade, we lived in Wallingford, Connecticut. My father had planted a church, Faith Baptist Church of Wallingford, Connecticut. And he had brought in a guest speaker from another city there in Connecticut. His name was Al Gerard, and his wife's name was Sue, Sue Gerard. And Sue was really pretty. To a fourth grader, I just thought she was just beautiful. And she had written a song, and it was... Isaiah 40, verse 8, put to music. She had written a song about it. And that, I just, I just thought that was all that in a bag of chips. You know what I mean? It was just awesome. And so in fourth grade, I chose that verse as my life's verse. And I just from then on, uh, I was trying to understand God's word and believe God's word and trust God's word. Fourth grade. Do we have anybody here that's in fourth grade? Any of you guys back there? Okay, Elena. Anyone else in fourth grade? Melanie. Is that right? Denver. No, that's not Denver. Fourth grade. A simple, childlike trust and faith in the Word of God. And I'll tell you, it's interesting the way that God works. Uh, when Pastor Hovestreit had died, he had died, I believe, in October. Is that right? And I came to preach here that following Thanksgiving, the, the, the week after Thanksgiving for the first time. And I walked in the back door, and on the wall back here in those days, it was paneling. Everything was either gold or psychedelic LSD trip carpeting. If you, and if you don't believe me, it's right, you can go in the hallway back here and see it. You remember on The Mod Squad? How many of you remember the show The Mod? Not the movie, but the show The Mod Squad. You all remember that? Remember when somebody was tripping? And they'd have that funky music, and that was the carpet in here, Grace Baptist. But on the wall back here, now some, I know someone saying, sitting there saying, I liked that carpet. But that's okay. It's a blessing. I know you did. But on the wall right here, it said, His word endures forever. And so it's interesting that the first verse I chose to, to base my life on the New Testament quote, citation of that verse was on the wall when I walked in here to be the first church that I would pastor, and hopefully the last church I pastor, if y'all don't fire me. Um, and that's been my passion, to study God's Word and believe God's Word and try and understand where has God preserved His words. When I was 17, my father, my parents moved. We were living in Lockport, New York. My parents had moved from Lockport to Indiana, and I stayed with my brother to finish my senior year of high school. I started going to a new church. It was Bible Baptist Church of Lockport, New York. And a man named Rod Phillips was the pastor. And he started dealing with, as I attended that church, and going to the Bible studies, he started dealing with the subjects that we've been dealing with in this series. And I became interested in that when I was 17. 
and started reading about it and studying, and that's 31 years ago now. Look shocked, everyone. That's 31 years ago for me that I've been studying this subject. And to take 31 years of research and put it into six or seven messages, it's a challenge. It's a real challenge. And so that's why we're doing it this way. Last week we began with inspiration. This week we're looking at the modern versions and how they handle the doctrine of salvation this morning. And tonight other major doctrines in the scriptures. The the next week we're going to understand, we're going to learn why is that? Why do the modern translations translate the verses that we're going to look at tonight the way that they do? Why do they do that? And it's a valid question. But answering that question would, would have much less value to us if we hadn't done what we're going to do tonight, and that is to look at how different they are. How is it that they can be so different? So that's next week. We're going to look at how has God preserved His Word. What is this doctrine of preservation that we're going to study? Sometimes when you come across this subject, what you'll hear is that this is a new subject, that people believing that God has preserved His Word in the English language is a new concept that just began being spoken of in the 1970s. That's what people will say. That no one before then believed that God had preserved His Word in the English language. Now, when I say God's preserved His Word in the English language, be careful to hear what I'm saying. What I'm saying on that is that God has preserved His Word, period. And He has also preserved it in the English language. I'm not saying that he has only preserved it in the English language. Is that right? I'm not, we're not the sole possessors of truth. You know, sometimes that we as Americans, we read the Bible as if it's an American book. Now, I'm glad I'm an American. Anybody here glad you're an American? But the Bible's not an American book. It, it's, it, it transcends cultures. It transcends human government. It transcends human thoughts. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that his thoughts are not our thoughts. As a matter of fact, his thoughts are high above our thoughts. And those thoughts are communicated to us in his word. And uh, so it it crosses many boundaries. This book is uh, by a man named Underhill. um, And this was Confessions of Faith. This particular volume was published in 1854. But what he did was he took the Confessions of Faith of the churches in England the Baptist churches in England. And I have a confession of faith here. And this one is from 16. It's called the Orthodox Creed. And this is from 16 something. 1678. 1678. Listen to what they said. This is talking about, this is their article. This is what they believe And it says, uh, or this is an article of the sacred scripture. It says this, and we do believe that all people, that all people ought to have them, speaking of the scriptures, in their mother tongue and diligently and consistently to read them in their particular places and families for their edification and comfort and endeavor to frame their lives according to the direction of God's word, both in faith and practice. The Holy Scriptures being of no private interpretation, but ought to be interpreted according to the analogy of faith and is the best interpreter of itself and is sole judge in controversy. 
1678, these people are saying that the Bible is the best interpreter of itself. Does that sound like anything that you hear here? What's the best commentary on Scripture? Scripture. That's what they're saying in 1678. Then it goes on to say, And no decrees of popes or councils or writings of any person whatsoever are of equal authority with the sacred Scriptures. Does that sound like anything that we would hear today? That's right. It's exactly what we believe. And now listen to what it says. And by the Holy Scriptures, we understand the canonical books of the Old and New Testament as they are now translated into our English mother tongue, of which there hath never been any doubt of their verity and authority in the Protestant churches of Christ to this day. So these people, Orthodox, this is the Orthodox Creed of 1678. What they said was that when they're speaking of the Scriptures and they're quoting the Scriptures, they're talking about the Scriptures as translated into their language. And that's what we believe. That's what we believe. All right? Then, what we see is that God inspired His words and then He preserved His words. And that's what we're going to look at next week. But then, around the late 1600s, there was a man named Richard Simon. Richard Simon was a Roman Catholic priest. And he invented something called higher, German higher criticism. It wasn't called higher criticism yet. But that was where it came from. A man named Richard Simon. And he believed that you could try to determine the authenticity of different manuscripts based on the type of literature that was in them. And that led to later findings that we'll discuss next week. Because of that, this, this German rationalism that entered into every area of understanding, people started doubting what they believed. They doubted everything that they had been taught, and they started trying to base everything on some sort of scientific method. And the Scriptures came under attack. The result of the attack on the Scriptures was a new text, a new Bible text. That Bible text, now by Bible text, I mean versions of the Bible in the original languages, primarily the Greek of the New Testament. So, two men, a man named Westcott, a man named Hort, they compiled this Greek text, it was called the critical text, as opposed to the text that underlies the King James Bible that we would use. The first major Bible, the first Bible that was accepted was this, that was published from that text, is this. This is the Revised New Testament and History of Revision. Uh, this is the authorized version of that, 1881. And in this, what they're doing is they, they lay down their methods of interpretation, what they were trying to accomplish, and then this is the Revised Version of the New Testament. Their Old Testament, this came out in 1881. Their Old Testament came out in 1885. But they didn't want the Americans to change it. So the Americans who had worked on the, on the translation of the Revised Version were required to sign an agreement that they wouldn't produce an American version of it for 14 years. So the American Standard Version was produced in 1901, 14 years after the 1885 had been completed. So now you have the Revised Version of 1881, you have the American Standard Version of 1901. But nobody would buy them. They weren't interested in them because they had this, 
And this had been the Bible, their Bible for 300 years. They weren't interested in changing it. And so those versions of the Bible started to become obsolete and were no longer being used. And so the copyrights were expiring. In those days in the United States, a copyright only lasted 28 years and you had to renew the copyright in the 28th year. So the copyright for the American Standard Version was picked up by the American Council of Churches, which, of course, is a liberal organization. By liberal, I don't mean politically liberal, although they are that. But I mean that they, that they rejected the inerrancy of Scripture. They didn't believe in the deity of Christ. They didn't believe in the virgin birth. They didn't believe in the, the preservation of Scripture. They didn't believe in the supernatural nature of Scripture. That's a good point. They believed in humanism. They believed in man. And they believed that, that divinity, the study of divinity, just made man better. And so these are the people that translated the Revised Standard Version, which came out beginning in around 1956. And I've got a copy of that in my, in my office. And not many people use the Revised Version, Revised Standard Version, because, as I'll demonstrate to you uh, in a minute, it was a liberal version. It undermined the deity of Christ and the virgin birth and... And nobody who loves the Word of God would accept that Jesus was not virgin-born. Amen? Um, Harry Emerson Fosdick, the, the, the famous, infamous liberal of the late 1800s, early 1900s, he preached a famous sermon called, Shall the Fundamentalists Win? And one of his points in that was, I know a lot of, he said, I know a lot of good people, good Christian people who don't believe in the virgin birth. Well, should we keep them from being able to serve in our churches? That was his premise. And I would have answered, yes. Yes, they, they can go and serve in something other than a church. But a church is a called-out assembly of born-again baptized believers meeting voluntarily in a specific location for the purpose of, of studying the Word, fellowship, observing the ordinances, carrying out the Great Commission, and teaching people to do all things whatsoever the Lord commanded. That's what a church is. So if they want to be involved in a church, they've got to believe in the virgin birth. They want to be a member of a church, they have to believe in the virgin birth. If they don't want to believe in the virgin birth, let them go be a mason or a moose or, you know, water buffalo with Fred Flintstone. But they can't be a member of a church. It's very simple. Things that are different are not the same. When I was in Bible college, the president of the Bible college said the first week, he said, you freshmen, you need to understand you're joining us. We're not joining you. <laughs> that's funny. Come on, that's funny. But it's true. It's true. And so this Bible was rejected by all Bible believers. But the Bible translators didn't stop there. There was another group that wanted to perpetuate this American Standard Bible. And so they, they beginning in the 1950s, began study and work on a new American Standard Bible. It's the NASB that most of you have seen. And I have one in my hands this is the NASB update, and I want you to see something. Let me read to you what it says. Scripture, this is the, the copyright notice. Now, if you have a King James Bible, I hope you notice that there is no copyright in your Bible. Okay? 
Well, look at what this says. Scripture taken from the New American Standard Bible, copyright 1960, 1962, 1963, 1968, 1971, 1972, 1973, 1975, 1977, The text of the New American Standard Bible may be quoted and or reprinted up to an inclusive of 500 verses without express written permission. So don't print copies of the Bible without permission of the Lockman, Lockman, Lockman Foundation. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. You can't do that without the Bible, and you've got to get their permission to print the Bible? How many of you, that's kind of, that, that strikes you as odd? Seriously, that strikes you as odd. So understand that there's a different motivation behind the modern translations than was behind the King James Bible. And we'll be learning more about that in the next several weeks. Another popular translation of the Bible... Oh, and let me say this. This is the 1995 version. And we said this morning, we demonstrated this morning, that when they updated it from 1977 to 1995, the update version, that's what this is, they made 24,000 changes. They changed... 19,300 words. Changed them. Well, in 1975, it was called the most accurate translation in the world. So if that was accurate, this one has 6,996 less words than the 1975. So were those words in error? Or... Is this a lesser Bible? See, the Bible says in Psalm 119, 128, every word of God is pure. Well, not those 6,996. They, they, they weren't pure. That's why we had to get rid of them. Really? And it's interesting that this Bible, your King James Bible, and in our last Sunday, we'll discuss the history of this. This Bible was originally printed in 1611. It was finally revised in 1769. What were the revisions that were made? Well, spelling hadn't been settled in 1611. The words are, were spelled all different ways. It, it, it hadn't been established or settled in, in the English language. By 1769, it had been settled. So, so they, they lined up the spelling to match that. The form of the letters hadn't been established yet. And I'll demonstrate that for you on the screen when we do that. So those were the changes that were made in the King James Bible for 400 years. For 400 years. Are you already seeing there must be something different about this? There's something different about this as compared to this. There's something different. And so, generally speaking, when we deal with a subject like this, it's, it's like the Tea Party. The Tea Party are portrayed as just stupid um, dolts who really ought to stay home and drink their moonshine. Is that right? That's kind of the way they're portrayed. And, of course, the Occupy Wall Street people, are they, are they are keeping up the great American tradition of protest. 
See the difference? We King James people are kind of like the Tea Party people. This NIV 2011 is more like the Occupy Wall Street people. And I'll, I'll explain that as we go. The last time the NIV, the New International Version, it began in the 1970s. It was updated through 1984. The last time they did an extensive update of the NIV was in about, 2000, or was about 1995. And they did today's NIV. And the purpose of today's NIV was to make it gender inclusive. That is, to where if it says he, then it would be changed to them. Well, what if it was a guy that was being spoken of? Many of the verses, the pronouns that would have referred to Jesus Christ, removed his masculinity. Jesus was a man. There's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. And if that offends people, oh, well, I, I just don't know what to do about that. I'm, you know, I'm not sorry the Bible says that. I'm very sorry that people are offended by that. But it's just, it's just truth. Sometimes life's not fair. You know, I ought to be 6'4". My brother is about six feet tall, and we, my dad says it's because he hit me on the head and kicked him in the tail. I don't know if that's true or not, but I know life's not fair. So here's the idea. We have to understand that the NIV, it, it, it's not translated the same way that the King James Bible is translated or has been translated. The, the New International Version is what's called a dynamic equivalent this is a, a literal word-for-word -word translation. Um, and there's a difference. So it would be like this. The best way that I can explain it is when I was in high school, I had a friend who asked me to tell this girl that he didn't want to date her anymore. He said, Jim, go tell her that I just, I just don't want to date her anymore. And so I went up to her and I said, hey, I can't remember her name, but his name was Doug. I went up to her and I said, hey, Doug said, take a hike. <laughs> I've always been full of mercy and, and compassion. Now, let me ask you, I, this really happened. This is not just a, this, I'm not preaching now, I'm telling the truth. So this, so I, I went up to her and I said, take a hike. And she was all upset. And he said, why did you say that? He said, well, you told me that you wanted to break up with her. I just thought that was the most effective way myself never having any experience at that. Um, what's the difference? He wanted a literal translation. I gave a dynamic equivalent. See, a dynamic equivalent is a scholar telling you what he thinks the Bible says. See the difference? Some places they'll be right. Other places they'll be wrong. And that's the problem. Uh, look with me at Romans, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Look with me at verse 20. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be reconciled to God. We're ambassadors. What is the job of an ambassador. Does the ambassador go into the court of the government and tell them what he thinks? No. The ambassador goes and says what his head of government told him to say. This is the message from 
the United States of America. This is the message from the Prime Minister of England. This is the message from uh, Mahmoud, I'm in a jihad. That's what the ambassador does. Is that right? And that's what the Word of God does. The Word of God is the communication from the mind of God to the mind of men written on pages. Now go back to Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 8, and I want you to, sh- I want you to see something. How specific the Bible is. Many times when we see a passage like this, we think it's simply poetry. And while it is very poetic in its form of speech, there's truth involved. So Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 8, the Bible says, The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. What were many of the original manuscripts of the Bible written on? Papyrus. What is papyrus? It's grass. See, those original manuscripts are going to go away, and they did go away, but God's Word shall stand forever. That's how clear the Word of God is on these subjects. So when we get into these modern translations, we have here on the platform the NIV, New International Version of 2011. And I don't have time to go completely through this and identify the issues with it. But what happened was that gender-inclusive version of 2005, the, the, of, of 90, around 95, the, it was called the Today's NIV, the TNIV. Of course, that was rejected. Most people who love God and will read His Bible, they understand that that wasn't going to cut it. So what they've done is they've reintroduced most of those gender-inclusive uh, uh, pronouns into this, the People's Bible, the new NIV. And they're going to stop printing the old NIV and the today's NIV. And this is all that you're going to get in the New International Version. So now, let's go to... I do want you to see one other thing before we get to the slides. Um, I've tried to work very hard to get a background on this issue. And what I have here is this is the Gothic, Anglo-Saxon, Wycliffe, and Tyndale Gospels. So here I have copies of the Wycliffe Bible, the Anglo-Saxon Bible... Uh, Tyndale's, and that's all the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John from those different Bibles. And you can compare how they were translated, and they agree with what we have in our King James Bible. All of these do. Well, then why, with the at, the, at minimum, 150 different translations of the Bible that are available today, they all disagree with the King James Bible and each other in many places. Why is that? Why is that? Well, we're going to look at that next week. Tonight, I want to go through and I want you to see some verses in the Bible that will surprise you. So go with me to Psalm 138. Y'all doing okay tonight? Psalm 138. And let me say this also as you're turning. um, What I'm teaching you is not taught in most seminaries and Bible colleges. It ought to be, but it's not. Um, and that's not being said in an arrogant way. I just praise God that the Lord introduced me to some great material, great teachers. Um, I've got hundreds of books on this subject. It ought to be taught, but it's not because there's an agenda. There's an agenda that's being supported in many of our schools. And uh, we'll demonstrate that over the next couple of weeks. But you'll see that agenda here tonight. Psalm 138 and verse 2. Look what the Bible says. I will worship toward thy holy temple... 
and praise thy name for thy loving kindness and for thy truth. What does John 17, 17 say? Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. All right. I will worship toward thy holy temple and praise thy name for thy loving kindness and for thy truth. For thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. Now, is God concerned with his name? Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. That's one of the Ten Commandments. How many of you think God cares about his name? Well, the Bible says that he's magnified his word above his name. Unless you have a new Bible. Here's what the NIV says. I will, this is the original NIV. I will bow down toward your holy temple and will praise your name and your love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. You see, when you do not believe in the preservation of Scripture, you have to change verses like that because they undermine your position. So what I want you to begin to see is, this is not just a different method of Scripture translation. There are some presuppositions. There are some underlying beliefs that determine the translations, that determine the product of the translators. I don't have time to go into it, but Francis Schaeffer did a great job talking about how our presuppositions determine what we believe determine what we determines what we do. And you have to understand the teacher's presuppositions. Let me tell you what my presupposition is. I believe every word of God is pure. Okay, that's where I'm coming from. There's no deceit in what I'm believing. All right. Look at the NIV 2011. That's the newest one. I will bow down toward your holy temple and will praise your name for your unfailing love and your faithfulness, for you have so exalted your solemn decree that it surpasses your fame. Remember, this is easier to understand. You'll see this over and over and over again. All right, so now, here we are. We see that it's been changed. The Bible says that God has exalted His Word above His very name. And now that's changed. If you have an NIV, that's changed. Look with me at Psalm 30 or Psalm chapter 12 and verse 6. Psalms 12, 6. A little bit of background is important for you to, to understand the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew and Aramaic. The New Testament was primarily written in Greek. The, the manuscripts of the New Testament, the, there are two families of manuscripts. One came out of Antioch. They were first called Christians in Antioch, Antioch of Syria. There's another line of manuscripts that come out of Alexandria, Egypt. And so those two different lines of of, of manuscripts determine what your Bible is going to be, what your text, what kind of translation you will have. The Old Testament is the Masoretic text. The, The Jews have had the Bible for thousands of years. There's not really any dispute about the Old Testament text. So when you see wildly different translations of the same text, you know there's an agenda behind it, okay? It's not different scholarship, it's an agenda because the text hasn't changed. So look at Psalm 12, look at verse 6. The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Do you believe that? I do too, except for those 6,996 that were taken out between 1977 and 1995 in the... New new ASB, okay? Now, look at verse 8, or verse 7. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord, thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. 
So those pronouns, the antecedent to the pronouns is obviously his words. Just if you're reading simple English, is that right? It's not difficult to understand unless you have an NIV. And the words of the Lord are flawless, like silver refined in a furnace of clay, purified seven times. O Lord, you will keep us safe and protect us from such people forever. Is that saying the same thing? Can they both be the word of God then? Things that are different are not the same. That's profound, isn't it? Here's the 2011. This is the original NIV. This is the NIV 2011. And remember, this is, they use easier words. That's the purpose of the NIV. It's to put it in the people's language. Because we all talk like this. And the words of the Lord are flawless, like silver purified in a crucible. What in the world is a crucible? It sounds like a science fiction novel. Nathaniel Tennant knows what a crucible is. No one else in this room does. And the words of the Lord are flawless. And, and God brought him to our body for that reason. We needed that. That part of the body was important and lacking. All right. The words of the Lord are flawless, like silver purified in a crucible, like gold refined seven times. You, Lord, will keep the needy safe and will protect us forever from the wicked. What does this have to do with this? What does the new NIV have to do with the old NIV? And what do either of those have to do with the King James? And now you understand why there's so much confusion and people don't believe that they know what the Bible says. They don't believe that they can understand the Bible for themselves because if a trumpet sounds an uncertain sound, how can they run to the battle? That's what the Bible says. So what I want to do is I want to go and show you how many of you have heard someone say this, that yes, there are all different translations, but no major doctrine is affected by the translations. You've heard someone say that. Well, let's just test that theory. And we don't have time to do it all tonight. We'll just do a little bit. There's no order to this. We're just going to look at Scripture and other translations, and we'll see what it says. We looked at this this morning. But thou, Bethlehem Ephrata, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. That's Jesus Christ. He's, he's, his goings have been from everlasting. He didn't begin at Bethlehem. That's where he takes on the body so that we can be redeemed. Here's the NIV. But you, Bethlehem Ephrata, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. So Jesus Christ's origin, he had a beginning, according to the NIV, is from ancient times. My God does not have a beginning. He's eternal. So already, are we seeing doctrine that's been changed? Let's try something else. How about this? King James Bible, Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. The RSV, that liberal translation I was telling you about. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a young woman shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. That's not much of a sign, is it? It's happened about 10 billion times. That's not much of a sign. But that's the liberal translation. Surely the more conservative modern translations wouldn't change a verse like this. Of course. No, they, well, let's look. NIV. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. The virgin? The virgin? The Bible says a virgin because nowhere in the Bible is emphasis placed on Mary. 
The issue is Jesus Christ. Now, aren't you glad there was a young lady who was pure and, and was obedient to God and was a willing servant? Aren't you thankful for that? But that's as far as it goes. Jesus Christ ended up having to correct her many times. She thought he was crazy. She went to lay hold on him and take him away. They went to lay hold on him for he was beside himself. That's what it says in the book of Mark. And that's when there were so many people around Jesus, they couldn't get to him. So they sent him a note and they said, Jesus, your mother and brethren are here. And Jesus said, who are my mother and brethren? But they that keep my commandments. What was he doing? He was correcting his mother. Not the virgin, a virgin. That's what the Bible says. It's reinforcing a false teaching. ESV, the English Standard Version, put out by the Calvinists. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Folks, that's a problem. That's a problem. But remember, I don't have time to go into it. All right. How about this? So we've already seen the attack on the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. The attack on the virgin birth is an attack on the deity of Jesus Christ. In the Bible, it says, Luke 2.33, And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. That's he's 12 years old. They forgot about him. They left him. How many of you have ever, you know, Jesus Christ was left home alone. Okay. And so when they came back and found him, he's teaching in the synagogue. And the Bible says, And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which are spoken. The ESV. And his father and mother marveled at what it were said about him. Was Joseph Jesus' father? What is that? It's a deliberate attack on the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. How about the New American Standard Bible, which is considered, these two are considered the most accurate by all modern scholars. And his father and mother were amazed at the things which are being said about him. Was Joseph Jesus' mother? Or was Joseph Jesus' father? <laughs> That's another discussion. No. So, now let me ask you. We've, we've only been going through a few verses. How many of you are seeing that doctrines are affected? Is this a doctrine that's affected? Am, am I a, a, a wacky, right-wing, crazy person? Yes. <laughs> Regardless of that, though, this is speaking for itself. This is speaking for itself. 1 Timothy 3.16, Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. Look what the NASB says. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated by the spirit. No, no, wait a minute. Who was manifest in the flesh? Is there a difference between he and God? Vital. It's a vital difference. NIV, this is even worse. He appeared in a body. Really? Really? Look at 1 John 5, 7. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. This is the... the, the, the there's a principle of Scripture interpretation called the principle of full mention. That is that in a single passage of Scripture, you will find God's full mention of, a, of any important subject or doctrine. The full mention passage on the Trinity is 1 John 5, 7. There are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. Who's the Word? Jesus Christ. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. That's Jesus Christ. All right? Look at what the NIV says. This is 1 John 5, 7, and 8. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. Do you know what that is? 
That's verse 8 divided. Verse 7 is not even in there. They've removed it because they say it's not found in the best manuscripts. I'm going to talk about that next week. Has God preserved His Word? Do you believe God's preserved His Word? Yeah. You know that we have, we have church fathers, early believers, quoting 1 John 5, 7 in their writings in the first century while the Apostle John was still alive. It was being quoted. And yet these great scholars don't trust that. So they remove it from your Bible. And it's the same way in the NASB. Are, are, we seeing, are, are there any doctrines changed in the modern translations? Are there any? Yeah. I, I gotta, I've got to say this. Someone's lied to you. Someone's lied to you. You know, our theme for this series is true from the beginning. The Bible's true from the beginning, isn't it? What does the Bible say about Satan? He's a liar from the beginning. What is the first thing? The law of, another one of our interpretive tools is the law of first mention. The first time something, someone appears or something is mentioned, there's something that's going to be true about that. Okay? And that's the way that we interpret the Bible. What's the first mention of Satan? What's the first thing that Satan does? Go with me to Genesis chapter 3. The first time we see Satan in the Bible, his first words. Is God the author of confusion? No. As a matter of fact, the scriptures specifically say that God is not the author of confusion. Look at what the Bible says in verse uh, 1, Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1. Now, the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said. So according to the law of first mention, you will understand that something is satanic when it questions God's word. First thing Satan does is questions God. He questions God's word. And that's what's being done in pulpits and in seminaries all over the country, questioning the Trinity. And I'll tell you this, if you've ever talked to a Jehovah's Witness, the first thing they'll point out is that modern scholars say 1 John 5, 7 is not supposed to be in the Bible. It's one of the first things they'll tell you. Okay, how about this? How about Jesus Christ? We understand that Jesus Christ had to shed his blood in order for us to be saved. Do we, do we understand that? And that Jesus Christ, the reason that Jesus Christ could be our sacrifice was because he was a sinless sacrifice. Is that right? This is Matthew 27, 4. This is Judas, and he is trying to give the money back to the high priests, saying, I have sinned in that I have betrayed the innocent blood. There's only one person that's ever lived who had innocent blood. Is that right? All right, look at the modern translations. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. That, what is that? The. That's gone. That's gone. NASB, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. No, the innocent blood. And the article is there in the Greek. It's there. This is not a question of whether or not it's an accurate translation. It's just defending a position. All right, let's go on. Now, um, I'm going to skip through that. Look at Revelation 11:17. The Bible says, saying, We give thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art and wast and art to come. 
because thou hast taken to thee thy great power and hast reigned. All right? Here's what the NIV says about that. We give thanks to you, Lord, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. Completely different. And the NASB does the same thing. Why? Different text. It's a different text. Luke 23, 42. And he said unto Jesus, this is the thief on the cross. How does this person get saved? Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Right? Here's what the thief on the cross said. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. Here's the NIV. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. There's no Lord. NASB. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. The, the, the concept of acknowledging Jesus Christ as Lord for your salvation is just gone. So let me ask you, are there any doctrines changed in the modern translations? Someone's lied to you. How about this? 2 Timothy 2.15. Awana people, do we know this verse? Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Here's the NIV. Do your best. <laughs> Try hard because we're all winners. <laughs> Can I tell you something? At the judgment seat of Christ, there are no participation awards. Okay? Uh, have you ever wondered why people don't know this stuff? Because the command to study has been taken out of their Bible. It's not there. Study to show thyself approved unto God. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. A workman who does not need to be ashamed, who correctly handles the word of truth. And you wonder why they don't know how to divide the word of God. Do you know what the word is in the Greek? Rightly divide. That's, that's what it is. Okay? Here, Luke 4, 4. Tell me if this is important. Jesus answered him, saying, It is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Do you think that that's important? Amen. Look at what the NIV says. Jesus answered, It is written, man does not live on bread alone. You've got to have potatoes. <laughs> Don't forget your asparagus. NASB. Jesus answered him, It is written, man shall not live on bread alone. It's just gone. How many of you think something important is removed from that passage? You might want to find out why. Uh, John Phillips, he did those exploring Genesis, exploring the commentator. Um, I believe he just passed away, but I was at a meeting where he was preaching. And he's from England and he's very stately. And he said, he's preaching a text and he said, Some of you have a Bible and that verse has been removed. You might want to ask, why? That's the way he did. Um, look at this. This is awesome right here. I think this, this sometimes is just humorous. Second Corinthians 2.17, For we are not as many which corrupt the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as of God, in the sight of God, speak we in Christ. So you know the modern translations are going to have to do something with that. Right? Look at what they do. Unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. (laughs) 
Let's see for a second. Let's, let's just make sure. Scripture quotations taken from the Holy Bible, New International Version, NIV, copyright 1973-1978-1984-2011. The NIV text may be quoted in any form, written, visual, electronic, or audio, up to and inclusive of 500 words without the express permission of the publisher. If you're going to do more than that, you're going to have to buy it. Huh. Isn't that interesting? Now, I just think it's so funny. Uh, on the contrary, in Christ we speak before God with sincerity like men sent from God. It, I think they've corrupted it. I think they've corrupted it. Now, I, I have to say this. We're, we're almost done, but I, I, have to, I just have to say this. In our culture, um, modern evangelical Christianity, there's a doctrine... Uh, the original fundamentalists, and I've got some of the pamphlets. They come from a group of pamphlets. There are, I believe, 14 pamphlets written called the Fundamentals. And they were written in opposition to modernism. That was German higher criticism attacking the truth of the Word of God. So conservative Christians from, uh, from Protestant denominations and a few Baptists got together to fight that, and they were called fundamentalists based on those fundamentals. Well, in the 1940s, the fundamentalists had gotten a bad name for being too conservative. So a group of people got together and started a group called the New Evangelicals or Neo-Evangelicals. It's a term coined by a man named Harold Ockengay. He was the editor of, of Christianity Today. And so they said, we're going to have a three-pronged attack. Our attack is going to be Christianity Today magazine, Fuller Theological Seminary, and the spokesman will be Billy Graham. And what they said was that the, their core was no longer going to be separation, uh, separating from false doctrine. It was going to be infiltration. They were going to try to get into the seminaries and the organizations and change them from within. The only problem was the Bible says, Come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. So they were violating Scripture right from the start. But their premise was, We're not going to separate. That's why you almost never on Christian radio or television hear someone teaching against false doctrine or false teachers. You never hear that. So when someone like Jim Alter stands up and, and just all I'm doing is showing verses, quoting facts, showing differences, and yet there are people who say that that's mean-spirited. Now, i got to tell you, I could be mean-spirited about this because it makes me very angry. I'm trying not to be. Um, because it really does make me mad. You mess with the, the, the Word of God. It really makes me angry. But our culture is so far from this. We're supposed to be inclusive. Well, we're only supposed to be inclusive where the Word of God is inclusive, and we are to be exclusive where the Word of God is exclusive. Is that right? Jesus Christ was very exclusive. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. So the acceptance of him was the rejection of everything else. That's pretty exclusive. So as we're teaching these things, man, this is not mean-spirited. I'm not trying to be hateful at all. But the simple fact is, here's what the Word of God says. I've esteemed every one of thy righteous precepts to be right, and I hate every false way. That's what the psalmist said, and, and I hope to, to, to uh, practice that in my own life. All right, so here we have Ephesians 3, 9. And to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ. Now, how many of you think it's important that, God, that we understand that God created everything by Jesus Christ? How many of you think that that's important? Okay, 
Understand, you can't get saved without believing that. Uh, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. You cannot be saved if you don't believe this. All right? You might want to find out what C.S. Lewis believed. But anyway, NIV. And to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, who for ages past was kept hidden in God, or which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. Is there something missing? And to bring to light, NASB, and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for all ages has been hidden in God who created all things. What's missing? Is there anything doctrinal missing from that? Important component? Someone's lied to us. I went to a man years ago. uh, This would be 1982, 1983. I'd gone to a meeting, and there was a, a teacher who, who was, he's a brilliant man. He's written more than 200 books on this subject. And I, um, I was reading, I thought I was an intellectual at that point. I was reading some things, and I went to him, and I, I said, I asked him this question. I said, why do Gleason Archer, uh, and I named two others that I was reading, disagree with you on this subject? Listen to what he said. They're just liars. And I was expecting an explanation. And he turned and started talking to the next person. That's where he left it. Do you know what we have to understand? Is we have been lied to. How many of you it bothers you when you get lied to? So let me ask you a question. Let me do it very simple. Are there any doctrinal differences in the translations? Has someone in a position of authority told you that there are no changes in doctrine in the translations? Okay, what is that called? It's a lie. Now, sometimes they don't know that they're lying. Many people have never heard this. So we've got to be careful in judging their motives. Many people have never heard this. But to quote again Dr. Phillips, you might want to ask why. Why have they never heard this? Interesting. All right, um, now, the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times, this is 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 3. Now, the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times, some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. So, seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, how many of you would think that's something to stay away from? Okay, pretty smart crowd. They're speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. Now, these, this, is, this is not good people. How are we going to know what these doctrines are? They they define what kinds... There are some examples of doctrines of devils and seducing spirits. Forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats. Are there any organizations that do that that you know of? So what is that called? A seducing spirit and a doctrine of devils. Is that right? I'm just saying that those doctrines, that's what they... Am I saying that or is the Bible saying that? Okay. So now let's see what the... NIV has had to say. 1 Timothy 4.3 They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. Is there something, is there an interpretive tool lost there? Certain foods? We tell our kids not to eat worms. 
right? When they were little, don't eat boogers. <laughs> Are those seducing spirits and doctrines of devils? No. Forbidding to marry and forbidding to eat meat. That's the doctrine of devils. But look at what 1 Corinthians 7.1 says. Now concerning the things whereof you wrote unto me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. So before you get married, guys, keep your hands off the girls. That's what the Bible says. Amen? Amen. And that, it, There's like three guys that agree with me on that. That's what the Bible says, right? I'm going to keep going. All right. Look at the way the NIV translates that. Now, for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to marry. Now, if we're going to interpret this in the light of Scripture, the Bible says that a seducing spirit and doctrine of devils is forbidding to marry. How about this? Anybody like the, st the story of, of, of the, the three young men who throw in the fiery furnace? How many of you as a young child that that, that helped you, that, that helped your faith? Isn't that right? So they can't leave that alone. Daniel 3.25, he answered and said, Lo, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire, and they have no hurt, and the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. NIV says, he said, Look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. How many of you think, seriously, how many of you think that's a problem? Yeah, me too. And I got to tell you, we will not compromise on this. Uh, I've heard someone told me today that, that people tell them, stay away from that church. Then leads the King James Bible. Run as fast as you can. Really? Okay, bye. <laughs> I don't know what to do with that. I don't. Now, we want to be kind and loving to everybody. I'm happy to sit down with anyone I can and discuss these things. I'm happy to. I've been here 15 years. We've never done a full length study on this subject like this. We don't beat this drum every week. But, you know, when, when I worked at Circuit City, we had. When I was in Bible college, I worked and did the, the car stereos. And in the outer room was the cheap stuff. And then you'd go into the special room where you'd have these speakers. And they'd be like $300 speakers to put in the door of your car. And so I'd take people into the high-dollar room, and I'd play in these awesome speakers. And sometimes people would say, sounds just like those to me. And I'd say, well, then you better buy those. Because if you can't appreciate it, just get those. There are some people, you're going to show this material to people, and they're going to say, that's not that big of a deal. There's nothing you can do with those people. You cannot help them. Love them. Amen? Love them. But if the deity of Jesus Christ, the virgin birth, the rapture of the church, if these issues are not important, I'm, not, I'm just not sure what to do about that, okay? Or, or Jesus Christ being the Son of God or a Son of the gods? What's he, Hercules? <laughs> it's, it's insane. Acts 13.33, God had fulfilled the same unto God hath fulfilled the same unto us, their children, in that he hath raised up Jesus again, as it is also written in the second psalm, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Here's what the NIV says about that. He has fulfilled for us their children by raising up Jesus, as it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I've become your father. So God wasn't the father before the birth of Jesus Christ? That's, I think that's the Star Wars version. I am your father, okay? 
All right, 1 Corinthians 15, 47. The first man is of the earth. That's Adam, right? Earth, earthy, earthy. The second man is the Lord from heaven. Here's the NIV. The first man was of the dust of the earth, the second man from heaven. Is there a difference there? John 3, 13. Uh, and no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. What is that teaching? That Jesus Christ is God. He's omnipresent. He can be in heaven and on earth at the same time. He's God. All right? But that can't stand in a modern version. No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man, which is in heaven, is gone. It's gone. Matthew 17, 21. Now, what I'm going to show you now, I'm just going to show you a list of verses that are removed. These verses are just not in a New International Version. Okay, there's not there. Matthew 17, 21. Howbeit this kind goeth not out, but by prayer and fasting. So the, the type of demon possession that can't be handled by anything else but prayer and fasting. That's removed from the Bibles. All right? For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. Just not there. It's removed from the NIV. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayer. Therefore ye shall receive the greater damnation. You know, that was one of the verses that was used to spawn the Reformation because of the practice of indulgences in the Roman Catholic Church. That's where they devour widows' houses. A, 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 a lady, her husband would die, and the church would require large payment to say a mass, to pray that person out of purgatory. They devour widows' houses to make long pretense of prayer. Well, that's removed from the modern translation of the Bible. Mark seven sixteen. If any man have ears to hear, let him hear. Mark nine forty four. Where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. Jesus Christ describing hell. Where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. See, you know what that verse teaches? Well, when a person is hell is in hell, they're in hell, and hell is in the man. Do you know what that passage says in the Greek? Where the worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. They just remove it. Verse 46, where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. It's just removed from the NIV. What is repetition in the Bible? When you remove the repetition, you remove God's emphasis from the Scripture. Somebody doesn't like the teaching of hell. And so they just take it out. Mark eleven twenty six. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father which is in heaven forgive your trespasses. They just took it out. Mark fifteen twenty eight. And the Scripture was fulfilled which saith he was numbered with the transgressors. Luke 17, 36, and one of the Pharisees desired him that he would eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and sat down to meet, talking about how to lead religious people to Christ. It's just taken away from the Bible. John 5, 4, for an angel went down at certain season into the pool and troubled the water. Whosoever then first after the troubling of the water stepped in was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. How many remember that story from the Bible? That's because you've never read it in the NIV. It's not there. Acts 8, 37, And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. How many of you know people that think they just have to be baptized as a baby to go to heaven? How many of you know people that believe that? Yeah. One of the main reasons for that is because this verse that explains baptism has been removed from the modern translations. It's just not in them. They take it out. Romans 16, 24, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. That's not in the NIV. Folks, we have to understand that our Bible is true from the beginning. Things that are different are not the same. How many of you saw some things tonight that were honestly quite shocking? This discussion, we're not crazy people. Uh, uh, 
I've got, I know a guy that says this, your failure to be informed does not make me a wacko. <laughs> Amen? You see, what we're demonstrating tonight is truth. It's simple truth. We're giving facts. Facts are stubborn things. We have primarily two books that we've looked at tonight. The NIV and the King James Bible. Both of them claim to be the Word of God in the English language. They can't both be. Because they say things that are diametrically opposed. They cannot both be the Word of God. So our job as believers is to prove all things. According to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Prove all things. Hold fast to that which is good. So we're going to be demonstrating next week, how do we know that God has preserved His Word this way? How do we know which one's right? How can we know that? We're going to be looking at that next week. You know, the biggest thing, that's the, the most important thing for us to understand is God revealed His Word to men. These words belong to God. They don't belong to us. We don't have the prerogative to change them. We're commanded to keep them. That's what we as believers are supposed to do. Our faith is being attacked every day by the deceiver. The best way for him to undermine people's faith is to undermine their confidence in the Word of God that they can hold in their hands. I want you to understand that you can know exactly what God said. People who don't have this Bible, they can't know. They can't know. Now, that's hard to hear. That's hard to hear. But it's the truth. That's why we've got to be really diligent teaching people the Word of God. Teaching people the Word of God. Um, in my Sunday school hour, we have done question and answer. And I, I, the, a message like this just brings up so many questions. Let's just take a couple of minutes. We'll, we won't go any longer than seven at the latest. And if we don't have any questions, we won't go any farther than this. But I want to be able to answer some questions. Does anybody have a question on this subject? Yeah, she's asking about the, pro, the, 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 the noun man when it referred to the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, was capitalized in the NIV but not in the King James. Yeah, they are trying to... One of the things they try to do in the new NIV is to um, capitalize pronouns that refer to God. We don't have time to do it tonight, but we could spend a whole service going through and identifying where they have missed verses that refer to God because they don't know what those verses teach. It's very interesting. So the Bible generally doesn't capitalize those pronouns. Uh, the King James Bible doesn't generally capitalize those pronouns. But they're trying to be reverent in that place in the NIV. They just miss it in more places than they got. But, they are, but that's, that is what was going on. That was a good, that's a good catch. Someone else, another question. In most cases, it's because the text they're translating from removed it, the underlying text. In some cases, that's not true, but in most cases, it's because the text, the, the Greek text that they're translating had removed it, and we'll explain next week why that happened. Rick? Um, other translations? Yes, and that's a, that's a huge problem. Uh, many languages in the world right now don't have a Bible that's been translated from the right text. Many of them don't. That's a, you know, for you as a Spanish speaker, that's a big problem in the Spanish language. The Reina Valera 1960, which is the primary translation that's being used, would be very similar to the New American Standard Bible. It was translated from the critical text. 
The old Reina Valera of, I think, 1793 would have matched ours, but the language in Spanish, the English language hasn't changed nearly as much as Spanish has. So it's very difficult. There's been, there have been two translations from the right text in Spanish, the, the Reina Valera Gomez and the Reina Valera Purificada, and both of those have done a great job, but they're not being circulated very much. So it's, it's, a, difficult, it's a difficult thing. That's a good question. Another question? Yes, Dave. Well, it is. It goes back to a man named Origen. He lived in the 200s. He, was a, he uh, did not believe. He had been influenced by Gnosticism. Gnosticism is based on gnosis, which is knowledge. They believed in a greater knowledge, and you could attain a higher knowledge. When you attained that higher knowledge, you were a better person than everyone else. And so he was a Gnostic. He didn't like the Word of God, and so he changed it to match his Gnosticism. That's the basis for all of these changes, was that man named Adamantius Origen, and a very, very wicked man. He invented the allegorical method of interpretation. That is, it doesn't mean what it says. There's some hidden spiritual meaning that only those who have the gnosis, the knowledge, can attain. And so that's why it's been changed. It was a conspiracy. It was someone who hated God. And those texts have come into the modern translations of the Bible. Um, so it was, a, it was a conspiracy, a satanic conspiracy to undermine God's Word. Now let me say this. That doesn't mean everybody who uses a modern translation is satanic. That doesn't mean that those who did the translating were satanic. That's not what I'm saying. But uh, when, you, when you study Origen, you find out it was a satanic attack on God's Word. There's no doubt about it. Yes? Two reasons primarily. It was before German rationalism. So the way that we think now has been changed by German rationalism. That change hadn't entered into the world at that time. So they rejected it because it wasn't right. And how many of you can see just in your own experience of understanding the Word of God, that those phrasings, those words, they're not right. Well, see, they could see that same thing. And the other thing that they were able to do was determine the, the type of, of manuscript. So when they would use the old Latin, the Itala, the old Latin that was translated in, in 150, that was corrupted by Jerome in the early 400s, they wouldn't use Jerome's Vulgate. They used the old Latin because they didn't like those Alexandrian. What they said was they rejected the Alexandrian readings. The Alexandrian readings, um, origin school was in Alexandria, Egypt. It was in Caesarea, moved to Alexandria, Egypt. So they rejected those Alexandrian readings because they were obviously corruptions. The translators saw that and rejected it. Wycliffe, even in the 1200s or the 1300s, he rejected the Alexandrian readings. Um, but that's why... They trusted that God has preserved, had preserved His Word. So when there were changes in doctrine, obvious changes in doctrine, there was a problem. Um, there are more than 5,300 extant manuscripts, existing manuscripts of the New Testament. The two oldest that are available are Vaticanus and Sinaiticus. And there, that's Aleph is Vaticanus, Sinaiticus is B. Um, I believe that's what it is. And they, since they're older, the, the modern Bible translations change the text based on those older manuscripts. But the problem is Vaticanus and Sinaiticus disagree with each other 3,000 times in the Gospels alone. So when they disagree, what reading do you take? Whatever I think I ought to take. So there's a real arrogance that happens now. Those men didn't have that arrogance. Interesting. And as far as the quality of the scholarship, Lancelot Andrews, the head of the uh, uh, Westminster or the, the head of the translating committee for the King James Bible, he would, as a young man, 
his family would take a vacation around Easter for a month, and he would learn a new language in, in that month every year. He was, he was conversant both verbally and in writing in 17 languages. Um, just a brilliant man. He could, he could read the Hebrew Bible at five and could write it when he was six. He was the head of the translating committee for the King James Bible. There's, people like that don't live now. They're making iPods. You know, they're not studying, they're not translating the Word of God. So that's why, that's why the, the readings were different. They rejected the false readings um, for, for uh, truth reasons. Interesting. Another question? Yes. The best thing that I know of that's readable is Dr. Doug Stoffer's book, One Book Stands Alone. And he does a lot of these comparisons. Much of what I did this morning is from his book. Um, I don't think anything tonight came specifically from his book. But it's, it's a very good book on it. And we have it available. We have some here. that, that I, I sell them on my book table when I travel. So uh, One Book Stands Alone by Doug Stoffer. Someone else? Yes, Matt. No, um, that's a great question. The best dictionary to use when you're, if you can't find a definition in the context that, to help yourself, get a Webster's 1828 dictionary. Noah Webster, when he would define his words, he, he, his definitions on words that were used in the Bible come from the Bible. And so that Webster's 1828 is great. The reason that dictionaries, be, you have to be careful with dictionaries, R.C. Trench, he was one of the translators on the Revised Version. He is the man behind the Oxford English Dictionary. Isn't that interesting? He was a bibliologist and, and uh, he, he, or philologist. He loved words. But he didn't like the way that words were anchored to the King James Bible. He wanted to free them from the King James Bible. So the purpose of the Oxford English Dictionary was to remove the, emphasis, the, the influence of the Bible on words. So imagine taking that dictionary to define the words of your Bible now. That would probably be unwise, wouldn't it? And so when you're using a dictionary, it's such a great question. The best English dictionary to use would be Webster's 1828 because that was before the Oxford English Dictionary. And uh, Noah Webster had a great reverence for God's Word. And so he gives great definitions for the words that are in your Bible. And that's, it's available. The, Oxford, the uh, Webster's 1828 is available online. You don't have to pay anything for it. Or you can buy a copy of it. They're available at you know, Amazon.com or any of those places. Another question? That's probably a strong concordance. James Strong, he has a, a number system. Every number in your Bible, he assigns it to a Greek or Hebrew. Uh, I don't think he has any Aramaic, but a Greek or Hebrew word. And um, th there are two problems with that. The men who gave the definitions for those words that are used in his, in his uh, concordance, many of them were infidels. They hated God and his word. Um, how many of you think that's weird? Why would you work with the Bible then, right? But th that was their field, and, and it comes out in their definitions. And so when we go into in this next week, I think next Sunday night, I'm going to give the men who wrote the dictionaries and lexicons, I'm going to give you information about them. What did they believe? What were they trying to do with the Word of God? James Strong was, I believe, a godly man who did the Strong's Concordance. But the definitions that he relied on were not good definitions. I'll give you an example. Thayer, from Thayer's lexicon, Thayer's Greek lexicon, 
You talk to any preacher, he's going to have a copy of Thayer's. I can show you my copy. It's printed by Baker. And a lexicon is what you would use to define a Greek word. All right? So you look up your word, you read your, your Bible, you look up that word in Greek, you use your lexicon to get the definition of the Greek word. It's like a Greek dictionary. Well, in the introduction, how many of you have ever read the preface to a dictionary? Yeah. In the preface to Thayer's lexicon, it says this, a word of caution is necessary. Thayer was a Unitarian, and his beliefs entered into his definitions both subtly and overtly, denying the Trinity, eternal damnation, the deity of Christ, the Trinity. And yet someone's going to hand that to a, to a believer and say, here, define God's words with this. That's why it's best to define God's words with God's words. The Bible tells us that 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 13, comparing things spiritual with spiritual. And then John 6, 63 says that my words, they are spirit and they are life. You interpret God's word by comparing word by word in your Bible. The definitions that people give you for words many times were written by people who didn't believe the word of God. So the definition is in the context of the word. So you've got to be careful with those things. Now, we've got to stop, but if you're a guest here, when I'm saying be careful of dictionaries, I hope you can tell I'm not anti-intellectual. I'm not anti-education. I'm not anti-study. But we probably ought to understand who's saying what. How many of you think it would be a good idea to study Karl Marx for economic theory? How many of you think that would be a good idea? Does that make sense? So if we're going to have someone define God's words, maybe we ought to know where they're coming from. Amen? Um, that R.C. Trench, he wrote a book on proposed uh, synonyms for the New Testament. He didn't like the words of the New Testament. He wanted to give you what he thought would be better. That's one of the translators of the revised version. He was on the translation committee and the father of the Oxford English Dictionary. Those are things that we need to know. Amen? Noah Webster loved God, loved God's Word. I think that's the guy that I'd want to help me define God's words. Does that make sense? That's all that we're saying. Let's be careful. Modern scholarship removes those warnings from us.